Hi everyone, welcome to Inside the Inspired. I'm your host, Jonathan Cohen. On this podcast, you'll meet professionals and experts ranging from entrepreneurs, doctors, athletes, nutritionists, lawyers, philanthropists, and so much more. This series shares the stories of people who create opportunity for themselves. My hope is that we all learn how to lean into our personal challenges while giving back and improving along the way. For the premiere of Inside the Inspired, I invited Billy Davis. Billy is a paratriathlete, a personal trainer, and a real estate agent. Our conversation delved into his journey from Kansas to New York, his music career, and overcoming a tragedy that opened up the door to the rest of his life. As an above-the-knee amputee, Billy constantly seeks his next obstacle to show others you can too. So without further ado, the premiere of Inside the Inspired with my friend, Billy Davis. How are you, sir? I am well. I am well. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Billy is someone who, as I just expressed to him, has inspired me from afar. Someone who has taken it upon himself to face adversity physically and mentally and emotionally from a distance, whether he knows it or not. His presence alone is a motivating factor in my ability to get everything done that I get done. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Born and raised in the great state of Kansas. I've been in New York now for about 20 years. I am a real estate uh, and a real estate agent, an entrepreneur. Um, I've been a fitness professional for the last 15 years or so. And for about half of that, I have also been an above the knee amputee on the left side. So an LAKA LACA. Um, I was a division one athlete. I ran for the University of Kansas back in the early 90s. Uh, for you older folks, that was like the Greg Ostertag, Vince, uh, or, I'm sorry, Jacques Vaughn, uh, Billy Thomas, uh, Paul Pierce. You're really throwing it back to the old school NBA yeah, with Paul that, Pierce man. Yeah, <laughs> mate of mine. Um, yeah, so that's, that's where I am. I was in a boy band for a bunch of years, got a couple record contracts, lost a couple contracts. Like, I've, I feel like I've lived a bunch of lifetimes and, you know, and now I'm doing this one. So now I'm an amputee, but I'm also a triathlete. Um, I raise money and awareness for people with disabilities. Um, yeah, man, I'm just, I'm kind of, doing everything, just, you know, taking big swings at everything. So as you could tell, Billy is a phenomenal human being that has experienced a whole different uh, gamut of careers throughout his, throughout his life. And there's a few layers that I want to parse out there and I want to go kind of chronologically. So before we get to 2012, I want to start with your life out there in Kansas. So what <laughs> made you want to migrate from being a college athlete out there in Kansas to, to New York? Well, you know, it's, it's funny. I was, um, I always start by saying I was raised by two visually impaired parents uh, who met at a school for the blind in college. So that says wow. a lot about my upbringing. I was raised by two college educated, visually impaired people. And it was an interesting upbringing. Although at the time, the only real difference I knew I could see immediately was we didn't have a car. So that was a big thing. It's like, we don't have a car. We take a lot of buses. This is annoying. So that meant I rode a lot of dirt bikes. I was a skateboard kid until I started breaking skateboards. I was a dirt bike kid until I started bending dirt bikes. And then eventually, you know, the thing about being raised by blind parents is you don't throw anything at them. So I never learned how to catch a ball properly. And it wasn't until I got to high school that someone, like a coach, looked at me and said, like, where did you come from? And I was like, oh, no, you know. And he's like, well, do you want to play football? And I was like, sure. Never thought about it, but why not? 
Mm -hmm. um, and he signed me up for a weightlifting class. And turns out I was super strong. Um, I deadlifted. I had a de school high school deadlift record of about 515 at age 15. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, 585 squat, a 300-pound bench press. Or, in high school? In high school. As a wow. freshman. About 300 pound bench press, 585 squat, and a 515 deadlift as a freshman. And by the time I graduated, I was a 400 meter champion with a 48 three, I think, quarter. Um, I won a title with that, which got me to KU. But the other thing was, my dad was a musician, so I could, I had this gift where I could sing. And along the way, I linked up with a couple other guys I knew, one in particular, Roger Ortega. Um, shout out to the RO and his fam. And uh, we ended up in a boy band together. And it turns out we were really good. So what got me to New York was we ran out of competitions in Kansas. We just kept winning shows and making money. And eventually we said, you know, maybe we should make a go at it. And we were kind of clear that given the time, you know, you figure 92, 93, that was like the early, like boys to men, color me bad, you know, that kind of thing. And we'd had some brushes with that. We toured a summer with color me bad one year opened up for Rose Royce and Morris Day in the time. And we were doing really well. And we said, you know, what if we move to a bigger city? And so we decided kind of left or right, you know, you want to go to LA or do you want to go to New York? And New York was where we ended up. So we moved out here to get a record deal. Um, we were entertained twice. Uh, the first time we lost our deal to NSYNC on their second deal. And then we went back again to try to be, I always say we were going to be the Jodeci to their boys to men for NSYNC. And the record label was debating, they were almost going to sign us. And then they discovered these kids out of Baltimore that called themselves Drew Hill. And it was an old milk scenario. They were like 16, 17, and we were like 23, 24. And you know, hey, they had Cisco. The youth. What are you going to do? Yeah, <laughs> oh, I say wow, wow. they had Cisco. I, I knew it sounded familiar. Okay. Yeah, that was, that was Cisco's original group was Drew Hill. So we, we actually, you know, we were up against them and, they just, they got a better spot. So they got the deal and we got bounced. And rather, that was when we were already in New York. And it was kind of like, you know, I think I'm just going to stay here. So I just decided to stay. I bought a one-way ticket, you know, and I knew that my chances of coming back to New York if I left, I mean, because you got to understand too, Kansas, where we grew up, it was great, but it was quiet. Mm -hmm. And so there were all these, if you grew up in a small town or a Midwestern college town, it's great when the college kids are there because I lived in Lawrence. But then everybody goes away for the summer. So on a Tuesday night, you can hear crickets at like 6.30. And you're like, my God, there's a world out there and nothing's happening here. <laughs> and I just I remember going crazy all the time. So when we had a chance to move, I was like, yes. And as soon as we landed, and uh, we actually started in New Jersey, to, or Jersey City. As soon as we got to New York, I knew. I was like, this is it. I love it here. Just the culture. And I'd never seen, to be honest, I'd never seen so many people of color integrated into a neighborhood that just mm -hmm. it wasn't a common occurrence where I was from. And uh, yeah, I took to it like a fish to water and I just never left. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that's how I got, that's how I got here. That's a beautiful story. So you had, you had some real experience on stage and yeah. it sounds like throughout your career, despite having this rigorous training regimen, you also had this enthusiasm and passion for music. So how are you able to balance those two? And, you know, I'm sure there were some dynamics where, you know, guys on the team may, may mock you a little bit. So how did you find yourself balancing? Not to toot my own horn, 
but it's hard. I didn't take a lot of criticism because I was really good at both. <laughs> you know, I used to joke and say like my best subjects in school were PE and music. Wow. Like you don't, funny. it's hard to, you know, I'll give you an example. When the first, I didn't run track until my sophomore year because mm -hmm. I just, I didn't think about it. And then a coach said, you should run track. And I said, okay. So I showed up in my very first track meet and mind you, if anybody that knows me knows when I was a kid, I had a Jerry curl way past the time they were cool because I just wasn't cool. So I show up like in 1989 as a sophomore with this giant waffing Jerry curl and these giant glasses. And everybody's just teasing me because they're like, look at the Terminator over there with his big <laughs> hair, his helmet fro and all this stuff. And everybody talks smack. And then we line up for the hundred for the prelims. The gun goes off and I wipe the floor with everybody. Nobody else. You, it's hard to talk shit when you're, when you're winning, when people are mm -hmm. beating. So yeah, you could talk smack, but I just beat you in a race. Then I went to the finals. I won that one. Next thing you know, I'm one, you know, fast forward a couple of years. I'm one of the fastest sprinters in the state. So you can talk smack about me running track, but I beat you. And in terms of the music, yeah, I got a little grief in the football, you know, during the huddle about, you know, being a singer. But the other thing was I was also Mr. Steal Your Girl because I could show up at a house party, start singing, Can You Stand the Rain? And next thing you know, you're standing there by yourself and I'm singing to your girl. So, <laughs> you know, it, it, I didn't really, it didn't really phase me that much. <laughs> So having that ability to kind of see through all the negativity that people would, would throw your way, it sounds like it carried you through all the way to New York City. We moved here in October of 98. Okay. And uh, Halloween, we landed in Jersey City. And it was right around that time, 98, 99, that we were really trying to go at it. And, you know, and it was a great run. I'm still good friends with all those guys. One of you know, one of them still in music. Another guy started a church. He's really committed to his community that way. You know, all of us are entrepreneurs. Um, but I think that a lot of it was being able to take the work ethic of, I'll say a division one athlete or a committed athlete. You know, it's not, I don't think it's any accident that the guy that started the group I was in, first of all, he was a son of musicians as am I, but he was also a golden gloves champion and a wrestler. And if you know wrestlers, there's a grind that those guys have mm. that's not common. So we all were kind of good with like, okay, so we just outwork people. And maybe we're not the best singers all of the time. We didn't have the runs that some of the other guys had that grew up in more traditional gospel things, but we could work focus. I studied music in college, so I understood theory. So I could build harmonies that sounded more complex with fewer voices. That helped. We had great songwriting and we were just, we just outworked a lot of people. We didn't mind. Like I remember in our boy band days, having rehearsals at 11 o'clock on a Sunday in a car wash because 11 o'clock was the only time we could get everybody together. And because it was so late, you couldn't go to anybody's apartment, but you know what? A car wash has great acoustics, high ceilings, and there's nobody there. So we could go there with a boom box, do our dance moves for an hour and a half, two hour rehearsals and be uninterrupted. So it was just Unbelievable. It was that work ethic. And we just kept working. And when we got here, we found again, a lot of people said they wanted to sing, but we could just outwork folks. So I, I think that really helped a lot. And that theme is something that it sounds like is resonated throughout your life. So you, you come to New York in 1998, the record deals don't work out, but that doesn't stop you, does it? No, I mean, you know, when, it, when I decided, you know, to leave the group and the group kind of did its own thing, um, I just decided, okay, what am I going to focus on now? And I went into other career paths. I tried banking for a bit. I got into personal training. Um, which is where I met Nikki. 
Uh, and you know, I just, it's, it's been a, it's, I don't mind work. I mean, I think that's the Kansas country boy in, in all of us. It's just like, we're good with a hard day's work, you know, blistered hands and there's, all, there's an honor in that. So we never assumed any of it was going to come easy. I never have. And to be honest, to honor my parents, you know, we, we'll talk about the accident, I'm sure later, but mm -hmm. I watched my parents work ridiculously. My father, uh, God bless him, I miss you. He was a, um, he was a musician with perfect pitch and an obsessive compulsive thing around his saxophone. He just didn't know how to do anything else but that. And I watched the way he worked and I was, I was just flabbergasted. The man would practice all day, all night. And if he wasn't practicing, he was, you know, and now to him, he took it so far that he would, if you were in a band with him and you were like a casual, like I teach music during the week and I play guitar on the weekends. You didn't want to be in a band with my dad mm. because he, <laughs> he would tell you heart, be like, we don't rehearse during practice. You come to practice prepared. And he would throw, I watched him throw people out of bands. Cause he was like, you're not good enough. People come to see me. So I grew up with that kind of that vision of excellence. If you're going to do something, you, you're, you're shooting to be the best. And if you're going to be amateur, that's fine. But I don't really do anything. I don't like to waste times with things I'm not going to be good at, or I don't want to be good at. And I'm okay with let's take the time to get better. So yeah, it's just kind of always been, you know, just kind of always the way that I've been, I was wired. My parents always worked hard and I just kind of grew up understanding that that's kind of what you do. So even though you're saying on one side that if you're not as good at something, you're still, that it may not interest you, you're still willing to put in the time and effort to go explore something like music, even though you're this phenomenal athlete, but at the same time, you didn't know that you were this phenomenal athlete until you were provided a platform and an opportunity. Yeah, I, I always joke that I was, I don't know that I was necessarily good at being an athlete. I was very coachable and I wasn't, smart enough to quit you know you kind of you hear if you ever saw Forrest Gump it's like why'd you put that gun together so fast because you told me to sir like <laughs> I was really easy like that if you told me to play run faster I was like okay well let me see if I can run faster you tell me to lift more okay well let me see if I can lift more yeah. and that momentum starts to become the thing that you do and then you know that you see excellence and success is more of matter of habit than it is luck or anything else and yeah there are there are things obviously i was good at i'm genetically built pretty well for what i do but i also work really hard at it you know i would say that being a dirt bike enthusiast uh, as a young person definitely helped my deadlift but being a really strong deadlifter helped my squat you know and then being a strong squatter and being a dirt bike kid probably helped my sprints mm. you know, then you just kind of you build off of it and the yeah. music was the same thing. I love music. I love R&B. I love listening. I love the way music makes you feel and the way you can move a crowd. So crafting good songs and putting together good shows. You know, we would watch other shows when I was in slow motion. Line over the O, by the way. And uh, we would watch other acts and we would say, okay, so those guys were great singers, but notice how they didn't move together. So we need to make sure our choreography is tighter. And maybe it's not as complex because none of us are breaking out. None of us were great dancers. But if we're succinct, it looks amazing. So the presentation is there. You know, maybe we take a little bit extra time to make sure the harmonies are so super tight that we, you know, we don't necessarily need to. We learned how to do everything a cappella because we knew that was a thing. So we could, at the drop of a hat, sing anything on our, on our catalog a cappella with a pitch pipe that I would always carry on me. And that just became one of those things that we did. So yeah, it's just, it's a habit, man.
And those are the types of habits that carry over into other layers of your life, right? So I think so. <laughs> which is obvious in your case. So I don't I'm not sure if we're fast forwarding at this point. In in 2012, I know that you suffered a tragic accident. You know, so, I always tell people I think that I was uniquely prepared for that obstacle. Mm. So yeah. I'm sorry I didn't mean to cut you off. I apologize. What happened? So 2012, May uh, 19th to be specific, um, I was actually a trainer uh, working at gym where, where you and Nikki met, Complete Body, actually the one on, down on 19th. Uh, day after, I was hanging out with some friends that weekend. I, I also rode motorcycles, like I said, I rode dirt bikes. Back in mm -hmm. Kansas, we ride motorcycles along the railroad tracks all day. Very That's what, cool. you know, like dirt bike, dirt bike. So I grew up riding dirt bikes. Um, eventually, I moved out here. I Someone talked to me. I knew a bunch of guys in a club that I was really cool with. They said, you should buy a motorcycle. I was like, cool, I'll buy a motorcycle. But knowing I'm not a gearhead, I went and bought a motorcycle. I got a motorcycle and joined a club with a bunch of guys who were gearheads. So that if I ever had any trouble, I could, you know, I'd know where to go. And uh, May 19th, 2012, I was in a horrible motorcycle accident on exit 17 up in Newburgh uh, on my way to Orange County Choppers. It's actually the exit to Orange County Choppers is where I crashed. Um, I was out that weekend to celebrate a bachelor party for a friend of mine. And the game plan was bachelor party Friday night, Saturday morning, get up, brush your teeth, ride to this, uh, that was up in the Catskills, which is about two hours away, ride to this motorcycle rally at Orange County Choppers, meet up with my club, talk motorcycles, walk around in my vest, take some pictures, you know, that whole thing. And then ride back with 30 of my best friends all the way back home to Jersey. And uh, I made two mistakes that day. The first was I rode on a highway that I'd never been on by myself. And the second was I took a street bike off road. Um, the shortest version of that story is I thought that the campsite was going to be at a reservation type site. You know, you're on lot 17, you know, you go to this, the general store is over there. We close it at six. And if you need anything, come back, you know, public bathrooms and showers over here. But it wasn't. It was Johnny's parents' land. Full stop. So when we got there, it was literally like, when you get to this post, you're just going to turn left and ride into a field. And then three miles into the, into the woods, there's a clearing. And that's where his family has been camping for years because they, the, they own the acreage. And I didn't know that before I went. So when I got there, I rode on that, that path and it wasn't a paved road. So somewhere between going off, going up to the campsite and coming back down the next night, I ran over something that punctured my front tire. I never found out what it was. It could have been, you know, glass, metal, a rock. I don't know. But um, I rode two hours on a leaking front tire all the way to Orange County Choppers. And for those people that know motorcycles, if your front tire leaks, your handlebars kind of get loosey-goosey. If your back tire leaks, your, your tail will wiggle. I remember my front, my front handlebars being loose but through a, an unfortunate series of events, when I went to check it, I realized um, as I was on my way that I'd lost my back seat slash trunk, which had my tools, my trickle charger, and my phone in it. So I didn't have any communication with anybody. So my thought was try to get as fast as you can, you know, after looking for my phone for a little bit, find Orange County Choppers and meet up with your club so you can have somebody look at your bike. And I rode you know, the speed limit plus a couple all the way to Orange County Choppers, which was uneventful because it was a straight line, which is the only reason why I did it that way. I knew that there were no turns. It was literally get on the highway here, get off here, and you'll be at Orange County Choppers. And I distinctly remember 
seeing the exit, seeing Orange County choppers, it's big as all get out. Exit said 45 miles an hour. It was to the right. I uh, hit a turn signal, went to go to the right. And because I was in a good mood, I was full leathered up, I had all my gear on. I hit the turn a little aggressively as any rider would, because I was like, I'm going to be standing for the next five hours. I mean, it's my last bit of fun. So I hit the turn a little hard. But I remember as I got to the exit, the bike didn't respond. So the road starts to go to the right, but the bike is going straight. And, you know, uh, that's what, as you slow, the thing with motorcycle tires is if they are compromised, they will typically stay inflated through centrifugal force until the bike slows down. So that's why the bike didn't malfunction while I was on the way because I was going straight. When I hit the exit, as I slowed down, the air in the tire, there was none left. So the tire hit, the tire went flat, the rim hit the ground, and the bike did what's called a low side and slid out from underneath me. I went behind it and I slid 50 miles an hour feet first on my stomach into a guardrail post on the exit. And my left leg, pretty much my foot just hit the rail and then threw me back onto the highway. So the actual injury was a compound fracture to my fibia tibia. I'm pretty sure I dislocated my knee. I broke my femur in two places and I snapped my femoral artery on, which is on your left side and instantly started to bleed out. Um, I remember being on the highway after the whole thing because it kind of, everything kind of went into slow motion as I contemplated what was going to happen. And then I remember impact. I remember seeing a bunch of colors and then a bunch of nothing. And then I just stopped moving and I was lying on my back. And there was just a sense of kind of like, oh, and you know, it's a good thing the brain can't recall pain because pain doesn't do any justice to the sensation that I felt the way my leg broke. And I remember lying there pretty much thinking, okay, well, we're dead. This is going to, we're going to die right here. Um, and I remember thinking I knew where the exit was. So I knew the traffic would be coming to the left. So I turned my head to the right because I didn't want to see a truck tire. I didn't want the last thing I saw to be a car. And I just laid there and waited for something to run over me. And that's when I heard a voice yell, dude, you've been in an accident. You broke your ankle, but you're going to be okay. So I'll backtrack a little bit. A couple of minutes before I hit that exit, I rode right past a Ford F-250, I think it was, pulling a Winnebago. And uh, in that Winnebago was a retiring Army Sergeant named Matt Pinkston. He was with his family. They were trying to sell the Winnebago because they were going to leave. They are planning on retiring. And as they were coming, they lived at West Point, which is in that same area too. And he saw me ride right past his truck. Now my bike was all geared out, painted, chrome, lights. It was a, it was a show bike. And he saw it and remember, he said, actually, wow, what a nice bike. And his wife said, what bike? And he said, never mind, which exit are we getting off of? And they talked for a minute. They decided to get off on exit 17. And as they came around the corner from exit 17, my bike slid across the exit and I was laid out on, on the middle of the highway. So he hit his brake block the highway and he holds holy shit there's the bike i'm sorry can i cuss on here you sorry. can do yeah it's fine. okay and his wife said what bike and he she turned around and he was gone the thing about matt pinkston is his job in afghanistan and iraq was bag tag and disposal of body parts and he'd been on tours where his only job was that he'd received two different citations in germany for being a first responder at traffic accidents he'd had his arm amputated in a construction accident 20, 25 years before, and they were able to reattach it. 
this man was uniquely qualified. I know I keep using that word, but just uniquely qualified to handle this specific thing because when he came upon, and because of that, he had a medical bag in his, in his truck with two tourniquets in it. I mean, talk about divine intervention. Yeah. So he grabs the medical kit, runs over to me. I'm laid out, you know, and I got to tell you, the site they painted was crazy because I knew my leg was broken, but I couldn't see it. And I was lying on my back. So all I knew was I couldn't get up. Matt later told me my left foot was underneath my shoulder next to my helmet. They said I looked like a broken Barbie doll. And because I'd snapped my femoral artery, it looked like someone had just thrown red paint all over the highway. I was just bleeding everywhere. I had like minutes to live. And Matt runs over and he says, dude, you know, you broke your ankle. You're going to be okay. You've been in an accident. You broke it. You're going to be okay. And I remember I looked at him and I knew he was lying. And all I could think of is, but you know what? Let's just go with that for right now. If, it, if it's that bad, <laughs> let's just go with the broken. I'm sorry to laugh, but you know. It's... Yeah, like it's clearly it's worse than that, but let's just go with broken ankle. And uh, then the story gets a little comedic, a little funny because I remember I had grabbed him and, you know, I'm a 225 pound. I was a fullback in high school. I was, I didn't, I ran track, but it was because I was strong. I, I was a big dude. Matt is 180 pounds and 10 years older than me and about to retire. This isn't, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> there's a difference, you know? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. So I reached up and grabbed his elbows and was like, <laughs> and I remember at one point he says, dude, you have to let me go. I can't move my arms. So I let him go. And I remember thinking to myself, don't freak out. Don't go to sleep. Just I'd taken motorcycle safety courses. Don't freak out. Don't go to sleep. Don't freak out. Don't go to sleep. I don't know why I kept saying that to myself, but I did. So I thought, how can I make myself not go to sleep? Oh, I get it. And I look up at Matt. And I see he's wearing a blue shirt with a, and it was a button down and I could see little chest hairs on his, on his thing. So I reached up with my hand and I grabbed a fistful of skin and just started pulling from one shoulder to the other to get him to scream at me, <laughs> which of course he did. And I was like smiling, cheesing ear to ear and he's screaming, ah, you know? So, uh, you know, eventually he was able to help. Um, they got the medics there. I passed out. I was, I was fully awake until I got into the ambulance I remember they made a joke about me wearing a, they asked me if I, because I had headphones on, I was listening to a, a Louis C.K.'s album. And they were like, you're wearing headphones. And I was like, yeah, Louis C.K. And they're like, shouldn't have wore headphones. And I was like, you know, you. So <laughs> that was the last thing I remember before that. At the end of the day, I would endure that weekend, uh, that May 19th, that Saturday, accident happened around 1.30. Um, I ended up in the hospital, 11 hours worth of surgery, four blood transfusions, I flatlined twice and uh, slipped into a pretty much a coma, almost. I kept waking up. And uh, yeah, I was, I was pretty banged up. The, the doctor, Dr. My, uh, Michael Esprinio, who's still there at Westchester Medical, thank God, he was a teaching physician there. And he famously came out and told everybody, he goes, yeah, this son of a bitch wants to live. So if you guys pray, do it now, because we've done all we can do. And everybody prayed. Of course, the motorcycle club came out. My friends heard about it eventually. And um, on day two, uh, that Sunday or Monday, they came out and they said, you know, we're, we think we're going to have to take his leg just because it was so broken. There's a picture somewhere in a phone somewhere that shows me and my leg looks like they built 
like an erector set Lego bridge over it <clears throat> because it was just pens and wires. They had to just piece it together, but it was so damaged. They took a vein out of my right leg and put it in my left to try to increase circulation. And even that didn't help. It was just, I couldn't hold my mud. My kidneys were failing. All my organs were failing. It was bad. And so he came out and he said, you know, we're gonna have to take the leg. And everybody was like, no, don't take his leg. And um, the famous line he said was, uh, you can have him back with two, or you can, I'm sorry, you can have him back with one, or you can bury him with two, but I need to know right now. And so they, they opted to take my leg. Uh, they cut it off below the knee. Um, I told you I slipped into sort of a coma. I kept waking up. I would have these crazy dreams during the accident. So I would wake up and it would be some version of, you know, I'd be dreaming that I was uh, swimming with one leg. And then I would wake up and say, did I lose my leg in a motorcycle accident? And someone would say, yes, Mr. Davis. And I'm like, do you know where you are? And I'm like, I'm in Orange County Choppers. And they're like, no, sir, you're at Westchester Medical. And I was like, shit. And I'd go back to sleep. And then I would dream about riding a bicycle with one leg. And then I would wake up and they'd say, you know, Mr. Davis, do you know where you are? And I'm Orange County Choppers. You're Westchester Medical. Was I in a motorcycle accident? Yes, you were. Did I lose my leg? Yes, you did. Ah! And I'd go back to sleep. And I would dream about swimming with one leg. Don't know why couldn't swim, but I would dream about swimming. And it, this just kept happening um, until one, I, I told you I flatlined twice. I think the first time I remember watching myself on the motorcycle from above the motorcycle, kind of like a drone, drone footage. And I remember thinking, that's not right. And then I woke up, you know? So the very last, uh, I guess the last time that, I, the last dream I had, which is the one everybody knows, um, I was in Manhattan near Complete Body on 19th Street, riding up 6th Avenue. Complete body's getting a lot of press today. And uh, up 6th Avenue before <laughs> Central Park. And the streets were empty. There were no, every time I hit a green light, a light it would turn green. Nobody on the sidewalk, no cars, streets are clean. And I remember thinking, and I'm on, a ro I'm on a road bike, like a 10 speed, like, you know, road bike. And I remember thinking, man, this is great. I could do this forever. And I had this feeling that said, if you say yes, you can't say no. And I was like, that sounds odd. You know, I kind of took it to mean like, if you say yes, you're going to be here. And I was like, but this is awesome. Like I got the city to myself. It's, if you've ever been in Manhattan on like a Labor Day weekend on a Monday. Yeah, super empty. Right. And that's what it felt like. And I was like, but this is awesome. And I, and it said it, I felt it again. If you say yes, you can't say no. Now, as you can tell, I'm a bit of a chatty Kathy. So uh, I remember thinking, well, this is cool, but eventually I'm going to run out of things to do and I'm gonna wanna talk to somebody and I don't see anybody. So no. And almost immediately I had the sensation of hunger. By now I'm around on like Broadway, you know, like the Broadway area, 57th-ish. And I remember hearing, you know, no. I said no and I immediately got the sensation of hunger. And for some reason I thought to myself, I want a cheeseburger and a Coke. No <laughs> idea why. I just thought I wanted a cheeseburger. And I remembered that there was a deli near the other complete body on 57th and 2nd, there used to be a Hamilton's Deli right there on the next block. And they knew my order, I'd ordered salads and you know, feta wraps and stuff, never had a cheeseburger. So I thought, I think I'm gonna go to Hamilton's and order a cheeseburger. So I rode up 6th Avenue, hit 56th Street, which is a one way, hard right, went down 56th over to 2nd, and rolled into complete body with my helmet and everything in. And I remember I'm dreaming this, mind you. And I walk in, and uh, the guy working the counter, I'd seen him a million times before. He's got his back to me, dark hair, black hair. And I said, excuse me, sir, can I get a cheeseburger and a Coke? 
And the guy turns around and he has no face. Everything has been digitally pixelated or blanked out. And I remember thinking like, whoa, you know, and when he talks, all I can hear is and he was kind of moving like if you've ever played Grand Theft Auto, like the first one, you used to be able to get stuck between like a taxi and a building and you would see the guy kind of glitch back and forth. He was moving like that behind the counter. And I thought, well, that's odd. And then he went back to work. And so I'm still hungry with this, like, maybe he heard me. And then I hear a door ring or I hear a bell ring. This woman walks in all in black and her face is gone. And I remember at the time thinking, why is she wearing a burqa? Even though it wasn't a burqa. <laughs> and she walks right up to the counter, no face. And she and all I hear is, wah, 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 wah. and the guy turns around and answers. Wah, 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 wah. Now I'm a nice Midwestern boy. So I look at her and I say, excuse me, miss, I'm sorry. Um, I was here first. Can I get a cheeseburger and a Coke, please? And the guy ignores me. That's twice. So I'm getting a little sore here. So this keeps going and I'm getting angry and I think it's a customer service issue and it's because I'm black. So in my head, I'm thinking about who I'm going to write an email to and I'm, wait till I tell Jeff, the manager, you're in trouble and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get mad, you know, and they're just ignoring me. So eventually I just get really angry and I slam my fist on the ground, on the counter. And I said, damn it, can I probably get a cheeseburger and a Coke? And instantly I'm in a different room. Only all, it's dark. I see lights flashing and these white things flying at me. And I freak out because I think I'm being attacked by aliens. So as I get up to defend myself and scream and throw a punch, ah! I rip my arm stops. I look over and there's a restraint on my arm and there's a restraint on my other arm. And then I realize there's something in my mouth and I can't like, it's in my throat. And as I kind of look around and everything kind of comes to focus, I realize, oh shit, I'm in a hospital room and it's the middle of the night. It was actually around five o'clock in the morning. These are restraints. I'm in a hospital and these white things are nurses. And one of the nurses runs up to me and she says, oh my God, Mr. Davis, thank God you're awake. You've been in a horrible motorcycle accident and we had to take your leg. We apologize about the restraints, but you tried to walk out of here the other day. <laughs> and as she said it, I remembered, I totally remembered like screaming, screw this, I'm out of here. And then I, was, and I remembered spinning to the left. And as I went to kick my leg off the, off the bed, what stopped me was I didn't have a foot. There was just a bloody stump at my ankle. And I remember going, what the hell? <laughs> and then somebody hit me with something and I kind of relaxed. Obviously they'd hit me with a sedative. <clears throat> so the woman, the nurse says to me, we'll take the restraints off, but you have to promise not to try to leave. Do you understand? Now, 30 seconds ago, I'm ordering a cheeseburger on second Avenue. You know, I'm high on morphine and Dilaudid. My hands are in restraints. There's something around my neck, something in my mouth, and I'm just confused. So I just look at her and just get the stuff off of me. I didn't say anything. So they take the restraints off and I'm like still kind of confused. They take the other one off. Then she's like, well, we have to take, we've got a feeding tube or an incubation tube. It's, we're going to pull it out. So they pulled that out, which is the other reason I didn't speak because you can feel those things. Like it felt like a straw in your stuff. Like it was gross. So they pull that out. And I look at the nurse and I just sat there for a second, not saying anything. And then I opened my mouth and I said, can a brother get a cheeseburger and a Coke? I'm really hungry. <laughs> <laughs> to which the nurse was kind of black gap jawed. We're like, uh, okay. You know, and that's when they brought in Nikki and, 
And, you know, we kind of went over like a what happened. And I remember asking Nikki, well, how long have I been out? And she's like, well, what day do you think it is? And I'm like, how long do you think? I'm like, I don't know, 12, 14 hours. And she was like, baby, it's Thursday. And I was like, Thursday? Like, what are you talking? Because we were supposed to do something on Sunday. We had like a big yeah. ride plan. I was like, what do you mean it's Thursday? You know, I, I was on, it was just Saturday. She's like, it's Thursday. So that's when we kind of put everything together. And, you know, and, and that's when it started. Um, it took a few days to kind of get used to it. Two days, you know, at the time, they'd only taken my knee, my, ankle, my foot above the knee or below the knee. Two days later, they took it above the knee. Um, there was just so much damage to everything. Plus, my femur had been pretty much destroyed. So they did that. And uh, yeah, like I said, it took a few days. I, I remember distinctly thinking, I have to find something harder than this to focus on. This cannot be the most difficult part of my day. And for better or for worse, um, nature or nurture, being raised by two visually impaired parents, being an athlete, watching my mom and my dad persevere, all kind of kicked in. And I remember thinking, okay, what's the hardest thing I can think of to do? And for some reason, I just kept saying Iron Man, Iron Man, Iron Man. So I was like, shit, now I got to do a triathlon. That kind of guy. Yeah, I was like, now I got to mm -hmm. do a triathlon. I can't unring that bell. And I also knew that as much as I love the world on two wheels, I knew I hated distance running. So if you can fall in love with something that you hate, that's got to be growth. And I knew that even though I couldn't swim, I knew that the chances of me drowning were not very likely if I survived this accident. <laughs> I just kept getting in the water. Eventually, I would be learn to swim. I'd get good at it. And if I could see myself tangibly get good at something, that would have to translate. And I also knew, you know, to be honest, I've never met an Ironman finisher that wasn't successful in life. You don't meet a lot of pothead burnout Ironman people. You know, so I was like, well, let me start surrounding myself with people that do triathlons. And that just kind of became like the thing that I just like, that's my North Star, just keep pushing towards triathlons. And it, you know, it proved to be a saving grace in a lot of ways. So yeah, I, I turned that into like the, you know, I, I, I focused on that and I, I turned the amputation or the, the lack of the leg into a physical challenge. You know, I joked with my mom early and when I was in ICU, I said, you know, mom, it's okay. You know, she's crying and I told her, I was like, this is just the universe leveling the playing field for everybody else. You know, it really wasn't fair. You know, she's like, shut up, you know. But I mean, you know, it's, it's this type of event can elevate you or it can destroy you. But it's, it's a, if you're not mentally prepared for it and you don't surround yourself with successful minded people with a certain type of goal and mindset, it will sink you completely. Um, luckily, uh, I'm already, aller I'm allergic to alcohol, oddly enough. So, and I've never been much of a pill guy anyway. Like I just don't, I don't have the wherewithal to remember to take any kind of pill and I've never been a big recreational pill drug guy. So the two things that amputees fall victim to most are alcoholism and opioid abuse. So I dodged both of those bullets having been uh the the son of two disabled parents or challenged parents i kind of knew what that system looked like so it didn't scare me so much uh being a performer and you know college educated meant that not only do i speak well but i'm okay being in front of people so you know i, I learned early to ask for what you need and just it very quickly like everything that i'd done my entire life 
kind of came together to say, okay, well, if this is what you're going to have, we got, you're ready. And I use that as, you know, the, the way to propel myself to other things. You know, I, I didn't want to interrupt anything that you right. were sharing and, and it's important uh, you know, with whatever time we have left to illuminate a few things. You know, I could talk to you for another couple of hours, honestly. I'm happy to divide this up into a couple parts. However many um, you need, bro. <laughs> I want to start by addressing the lens by which you were able to share your story. You articulated it with such detail and the intricacies of each part of your dream, what it represented, what you wanted uh, when you woke up and what you were seeing when, when you were in that state of mind, the consciousness and the subconsciousness, the mind is still operating despite the body being in such a different state, right? Physically. And you then took that power and brought your body to life in a completely different way than a lot. You know, a lot of people, have trouble getting themselves out of bed to even get the workday going. Right. And you were put in this situation where despite being a collegiate athlete, despite having these phenomenal baseball card numbers that, you know, are out of the stratosphere for someone at that, at that stage. And then parlaying that into a music career and then still not being satisfied and going from, Kansas to New York and navigating the space, trying all these different career paths and learning how to ride a motorcycle, a dirt bike, this diverse skill set. Like you said, it all set you up for the next step. And in this case, you have taken your story and use it as a platform for good. You could have gone down so many different roads, like you were saying. And it's not that you dodge the bullet. You have the opportunity every day to engage in those recreational uses, but you elect to explore what the best version of yourself looks like. And that's largely what I want this entire show to be about. I want people to see what adversity truly is. And it can come in all different types of shapes, sizes, forms. But in your case, the most catastrophic thing that could happen to a human being occurred. And you used it in a way to motivate and, and chase your dreams and your goals. And if they didn't exist, you created them and continued to chase after them. So what do you say to someone that doesn't necessarily have that sense of purpose that you constantly establish for yourself? A couple of things. And one, I just want to add one more detail to the accident, just because it does kind of set a context for what I'm going to say next. When I got to the hospital, I only had 15% of my body's blood volume left. I lost 85% of the body in my 225 pound body. I lost 85% getting to the hospital. And during surgery, you lose about 5% just from surgery. You get below 10%, you're dead. So I, you know, I will never, I will never need to ask what's the closest I ever came to death. Pretty sure I know when it happened. Now, for what I would say to people who have trouble, I would say two things. One, you have no idea what you're capable of. Your body, your mind, your spirit are so much stronger than you give yourself credit for. Just listen to a David Goggins. 
listen to a Jacko, listen to a Joe Rogan, you know, like, you know, the why it did it. You can go on the internet and find so many examples of people that just that thrive in situations that should have killed them. So that's one thing. The other thing is that it's, I'm fortunate that I wasn't doing anything that detracted. I can't, you know, I don't have to say I was drunk. I, I didn't do anything foolish. Just, I just, I was, it was a bad day. I think that my parents had a lot to do with it, but I would tell people, one, you're, you're capable of more you're, than you think you are. And two, it's a habit. You do what you can and you don't do what you can't do. As much as I've always, I've always held two truths to be very clear. One, I was blessed with a decent amount of genetic whatever, but two, I also think a lot of people could be what I do, could do what I do if you just stick at it. I don't, I don't think that the, the goal is, I don't think that success is it. I think that failure, being okay with failure is where you find success. And if you look at your, whoever your hero is, look at their hero. It's a person that got okay with, okay, so I'm going to fail until I win. I'm going to fail until I figure it out. And like I said earlier in the interview, a lot of times I was just too stubborn to quit. I didn't know anything. I, when I started on football, I, had, I, didn't know there were two, I didn't know there was an offensive and a defensive team because my dad was a musician. I used to watch him play saxophone. We didn't play football. And I didn't play football because we didn't have a car. I couldn't get to practice. So by the time I'm 14 years old and I start on a football team, I'm five years behind. You know, everybody else played Pop Warner. I was just a kid who could deadlift, you know, who happened to be faster. The reason why track and field worked out is because there are no motor skills involved. Just get to the end of the line before that guy does. So it was easy. Basketball, I'm terrible at. Baseball, I suck. I didn't put the time in. But if you just continue to go at it, you know, like I said, with swimming, I just, I had faith that I was not going to drown. So I said, you know what? Let me just show up. Let me just keep getting in the water. I knew I was going to suck. But I also knew as long as I didn't drown, I was going to be okay. And eventually I figured it out. Just like riding a bike, just like anything else. You just have to keep showing up and be okay with failure a few times or more than a few times. And that, that's what I tell people, man. Get, it's not about, don't, don't try to, just try to be the best version of yourself. And then when you get to that version, see if you can be a little bit better. Absolutely. And you just keep thriving. And what you'll notice is it's that habit. It's that success. It's that 10,000 hour rule. It's just, it's, you know, how, how much are you willing to put into something? And to be coachable. Oh my goodness. Surround yourself with positive people. Um, early in my journey as an amputee, I went to a lot of support groups. And the first support groups I went to were miserable. The room of 20 people and everybody, oh, so-and-so owes me money. And I live in my mom's basement. Life is terrible. And how can I, women will never love me. And how can I, da, 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 da. And, you know, and I'm blessed. I had Nikki. But there was never a moment when I didn't think, I never thought, why me? Because I thought, you know, well, who am I to, who am I to say it shouldn't happen? Like, okay, so it happened. And that's not to say I didn't have my dark days. I, and to be honest, there, I remember one afternoon specifically wanting to, wishing I was a drinker. Wish I was like, man, if I was a, if I could have alcohol right now, I would love to go through a pint of vodka and just going, well, that's not an option. So what are we going to do? I get my high doing triathlons, you know, like I, that's, and I still am an adrenaline junkie, you know, like I still like to go fast. I still like to go hard. I like to go high, but you know, it's, that doesn't change. So I think it's just a matter of knowing that you're, 
you're stronger than you give yourself credit for. And most of us are. Most of us are. Thank God you never get pushed to that, that extreme. But, you know, you're, you're there. You, uh, do you have children? I don't know if you have kids. I do not. I do not. Okay. If you ever ask somebody that's got kids, let's imagine, you know, you got kids. Someone, and someone once gave me this example. You do an ultra Ironman. You know, two swims, duh, 200 miles, three marathons. You're exhausted. You're coming across the finish line. Your legs are cramping. Everything burns. Everything hurts. You see your kids. And as you see them, you see a white van pull up, the back door is open, and somebody throws your kids in the car and drives away. What are you going to do? You just ran an ultra marathon. You're going to sprint to the van. You're going to grab that van, and you're going to rip the bumper off of it. And that extra little bit, that's that extra 40% David Goggins talks about. Being a fitness professional is no accident either. I know that your body has a mechanism where your brain cuts off so that you won't die. But that doesn't mean you're going to die. It just means your body is going, you're sore, don't do that. But if you can get used to pushing past that, that's where the glory is. Kites fly against the wind. You know, so if you want to, you know, we're one of the human body is the only machine, I say machine, known to man that literally gets stronger the more you try to destroy it. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that as fitness professionals, you don't get stronger by lifting less weight. You get stronger by systematically lifting more, lifting heavier, doing more, going longer. So for me, after, you know, the accident happened, it became, okay, well, we can get better. We just have to, we have to understand that this is going to suck. It's going to be a while, but we're going to be okay. And that's what I do. And that goes back to that central governor theory where, like you're saying, when, when the body, when the, pardon me, when the mind gives out, the body can keep going. What's next for you? I still haven't, I haven't completed an Ironman, so I want to do that. Um, obviously, you know, I've just gotten into real estate in the last year. So I'm thinking legacy now. I mean, and for me, it's all about how can I leave this world a better place? So I do as much as I can to help as many people along the way. I work with amputees every opportunity, and I'm looking to build myself and my brand into a, a position where I can contribute to the next generation of challenged athletes, people of color, and be a voice that matters. Um, I want to be in the room where it happens. Um, and that, that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm up to. That's beautiful. I think always thinking about impact, you know, there's a scale that Ray Dalio talks about between savoring life and making an impact. Where on the scale do you fall? And it sounds like you're veering more towards the side on the scale of making an impact. How do you want to make an impact moving forward? I want to make sure that when I am no longer here, people are still touch moved and inspired such that they see a possibility for themselves in, in whatever it is that I say. I want to make sure that my children are clear that anything is possible because they saw their dad do it with one leg. I want to make sure that I honor my father, my, my grandfathers, you know, because I am my ancestors greatest dream realized. You know, and I, I, I want to make sure that I carry that torch. I want my grandkids to like, okay, so tell us the story about Grandpa Billy again. He did what? <laughs> so that's what's expected of you. Like, I, you know, I didn't even get into my family, but my family, we're, they're a bunch of overachievers. They're all educators and, and military. And, and they just, they, they are opinionated, smart, well-read, like movers and shakers and community leaders. And at the end of the day, if you don't reach out and teach someone else how to be great, or how to teach some, I want to be the kind of person that sires sires. 
You understand? I, I want other people to be able to say, well, this is what I learned from Billy and this is what I'm going to teach to you so that your next generation can be great. That's why I say it's legacy. You know, I, I want to leave an impact that's bigger than I was. That's incredible. You're an incredible human being with so much under his belt and such such a beautiful future to look forward to. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to sit down with me. I look forward to sitting down with you again in the future. I'm going to be hanging out with Nikki later this week. Sweet. It's going to be great. This is you set the bar very high for the rest of the of the lineup for season two. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, amen, man. Like I said, we can do this whenever you want. I, I'm happy to. It was a pleasure. I'm, I'm so honored. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the premiere of Inside the Inspired. If you want to connect with Billy, you can find him on Instagram at Real Estate Triathlete. You can also find him on his website, thebillydavis.com. If there's anyone that you want to hear from in particular, please feel free to reach out to me at Inside the Inspired. I can't wait to introduce you to the impressive lineup of guests coming up for this season. I look forward to hearing from you, and in the meantime, stay safe, stay strong, stay mindful.